It's wow. not me. I ain't doing anything. No. She's playing with my dick under the table. It's very hard to concentrate. <laughs> you can hardly believe that we're like smart people. When they hit, bro, they split rocks. Not my girls hotter than that summer asphalt. If she turn me down, God knows that it's her loss. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Shit Happens When You Party Naked. Really appreciate everybody tuning in the podcast. That music is definitely messing with me a little bit. <laughs> really appreciate all the positive feedback we've received. I am your host, DJ Easy Dick. Just kidding. My name is Jason. I have my wife, Christina, with me. What's up, baby? Hey. How you doing, girl? I'm good. How are you? Mm-hmm. Although I would not mind it. In fact, I would even appreciate it a little bit if you did start calling me DJ Easy Dick. I can work on that. Yeah. You have to say it like that, too. You have to say it low. You easy dick. You know what I mean? I mean, it sounds like a true statement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe for you. For you, maybe. Better be only for me. Son. Yeah, baby. Well, I ain't getting nobody else pregnant. Just you, baby. You ain't getting me pregnant either, so. <laughs> I thought we were going to try to start this podcast off on a good <laughs> foot. I thought we were going to have a serious podcast where we talked about science and shit. Well, I guess we should get there. Announcements first. Okay. All right. So we have some cool shit going on. Of course, we are actively promoting our participation in the uh, Beards, Beers, and Battle Scars fundraiser for Vets Count. That's a fundraiser that's being put on by off-color discussions with the Bearded Sinners of New Hampshire. I'm not even sure what the hell those guys do, but I'm not fucking with them. Bearded Sinners? They sound... Like they would fuck my shit up. And we're really only involved in the capacity that we are donating the most money by $1. We're donating $1 more than the next highest donator. So fuck them. They can kiss my ass. Unless they get up to like, I don't know, $5,000 or something. Yeah, in which case, yeah, I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear that. Yeah. So we can um, just watch the like the donations and then at a certain point. Yeah. We'll, we'll we, stop noticing. The fundraiser ends on August the 4th, so there's a limited time anyway to make your donations, people, but if you do wish to join us in making some donations to this worthy cause, it's a very good cause. It's benefiting uh, veterans and service members, their families, local to the New England area. So if there's a veteran who's near and dear to your heart, please consider donating. You can visit vetscount.org. Click on the New Hampshire link to go to Vets Count of New Hampshire. You'll find the beers, beards, beer, be, beards, beers, and battle scars. Why did they have to fuck with me like that? <laughs> beards, beers, and battle scars. And um, you can make a donation quite easily through the website. So I encourage everybody to, to do that. And um, it's, It is a good cause, though. It and is I think, a good cause. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with off-color discussions and some of the other podcasts, NH podcasts there at the Summer Sizzler. That is the August the 4th event that I mentioned that is going to be the end of donations for this particular um, fundraiser. And it's going to be the final event in the Beards, Beers, and Battle Scars fundraiser. And uh, we're going to be there with, we're going to be there with uh, at least a couple of the other podcast NH podcasters. Those are New Hampshire podcasters, podcastnh.com. You can find other cool New Hampshire podcasters, people like uh, We Need to Talk, our buddies Meter and Pepin, love those guys. 
Love them. Love them. I want to kiss their faces, miss them. Uh, but we're going to be hanging out with them all day at the um, Summer Sizzler. That's August the 4th. Uh, we're going to be de- doing illicit substances and distributing those to minors and um, all sort of crazy, awful, evil shit. But we're going to have a great time with them, off-color discussions. I think um, some of the other podcasts and each podcasts are going to be there, I believe. Uh, but I'll, I'll announce those as plans for that firm up. But if you're local, if you're in the area in New Hampshire and you want to come hang out, we're going to be doing a raffle. We're going to be giving away some stuff. So come on down to that and uh, check out podcastnh.com. In today's podcast, <laughs> we have a very special podcast for you. This is like a big moment for us here at Team Almy. It's a very big moment because this is like our first big boy, big girl guest. We have Brian Dunning on the show today. Uh, Brian Dunning is a science writer. He's host of the Skeptoid podcast. He's authored several books, including his latest release. It's called Conspiracies Declassified. That just came out um, about two weeks ago, about two weeks ago, via his website, his podcast, Skeptoid, his publications. Brian presents the truth behind a lot of conspiracies, uh, pseudoscience, so uh, it was a really, really great chat, and um, we're going to start the show by listening to that. Excellent. All right. Sorry about the uh, technical issues we were having there, but I really appreciate you coming on the show. I want to welcome you to Shit Happens When You Party Naked. really appreciate you coming on and talking to me this morning. It's no problem. I always enjoy doing it. Good. Well, good. Hopefully we, uh, we can have a little fun here, too. We have a pretty good uh, crossover of interest with regard to... Uh, the science stuff as well. So I actually did want to start by asking you why you set out to write Conspiracies Declassified, and that might even roll into your your purpose behind producing Skeptoid. Yeah, so I, the, the, actually the, the book wasn't my idea. The book came from uh, the publisher. They contacted me out of the blue and said, hey, we're doing this uh, series of 50 of this, 50 of that, and we want to do one on 50 conspiracy theories. And you're the conspiracy theory guy, so I guess I'm the conspiracy theory guy. So <laughs> okay. So they came to me with um, with kind of a list of some of their own conspiracy theories that I liked, and they said, "Did I know any more?" So I went to um, to my podcast database. You know, I've done six hundred and something episodes of of the Skeptoid podcast, and I just did a database dump of everything in the conspiracy theory category, and I had two hundred. Right off the bat, so had to whittle that down to fifty. <laughs> and, yeah, and here we go. Got a list. Got a list of conspiracy theories. So that explains why there's fifty in the book. Um, I didn't know if that was. It sounds like that was something that the publisher requested. I didn't know if that was arbitrary or you just you you just loved the fifty that much. Um, and I guess there's worse things to be known as than the conspiracy guy. I mean, you could be you could be the the white nationalist guy or, or something like that. I mean, that's a terrible thing to be known as. So I, I will take the being the conspiracy guy over the the being the neo Nazi guy or something like that sure. could be an awful reputation to have. Well, of course, being the conspiracy theory guy that can be read both ways. Like I could be the guy who believes all the conspiracy theories, and that's pretty much the same as the white nationalist guy. Yeah, I would I would presume if somebody was introducing you to me and said, hey, this is Brian Dunning. He is the conspiracy guy. I would think, oh, my God, he's going to have a tinfoil hat on for sure. He's got to be wearing a tinfoil hat. Of course. Right? I would presume that you were the 
pro-conspiracy guy, that that you were the doubter of all of the official stories and um, that maybe you spend a lot of time on the internet. You know, it, it's funny, the, the, the word, the term official story has become almost like a swear word. If you say the official story is this, you know, that that's a sort of poisoning the well. It immediately casts doubt that the official story, whatever it is, should be assumed to be false as the kind of as the default. You know, it's like, what's the, what's the official story on the atomic weight of boron? You know, that's, there's, there's some things that we should, that we immediately doubt and some things we immediately don't. But anytime you say the official story is this, you, you, you almost lose credibility, which is, which is unfortunate because, you know, in most cases in the world, the official story is obviously the true one. Yeah. And that's a very good point. Um, but I think also that periodic table is full of shit. I'm not sure about that whole molecular weight of boron thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm just supposed to accept that this periodic table that I've been looking at since I was a kid is right. I mean, I don't know about this. This is the government obviously trying to feed me some shit about boron, right? I mean, I don't, absolutely it is. Absolutely. So that is a good point. We should probably just say the story instead of the official story, what the government <laughs> wants you to believe. Right. So um, you have a, a passion for this scientific inquiry, though. You're not the conspiracy guy who believes all the conspiracies. You're the conspiracy guy who uh, wants to spread the truth about the pseudoscience, dispel that stuff. So where does your passion for this scientific inquiry come from? You know, it, it, it's, it's called scientific skepticism. And when you use the word skepticism, that's, that's a, uh, it's a problematic term because when people hmm. hear, oh, you're the skeptic, so you're the guy that thinks 9-11 was an inside job and we didn't really walk on the moon and everything, so they kind of hear the opposite. So it's a, it's, it's a problematic term. What, what, to directly answer your question, what my passion is and what I enjoy is taking some urban legend, some pop culture belief, whatever it is, and not simply debunking it because that's not very interesting, trivially easy to do, and doesn't give anyone anything. It just kind of takes away a story. But instead, go underneath it and find out why that urban legend exists. What's the real hmm. sociology behind why people tend to believe something like that? What's the real history that, uh, that the story might be based on? There's always really, really cool stuff to learn when you dig far enough into these. And so whether it's, whether it's a conspiracy theory or an urban legend or a paranormal claim or you know, some uh, magical diet or, or magical alternative health thing, there's always something interesting to learn by digging farther than the debunking. So that's, that's what I really enjoy. That's what my show's about, and that's what I try to do in the book. I, I like that. It's not just a matter of you saying, hey, conspiracy nuts, you guys are wrong. This is why you're wrong. It's more a matter of finding uh, what there is there that is true that might be very, very fascinating. It might be really, really interesting to learn the truth behind some of these things, the history of some of these urban legends, for instance, that w maybe they were based on some kernel of truth that then uh, went through a telephone game over the years that became this thing. But I like that there is, and I think that's, for me at least, the, the appeal of uh, both Conspiracies Declassified as well as your, your podcast is that there is kind of this um, sort of reverence for the material, the, the truth behind the material as well. It's not like a, a mean-spirited thing, like you guys are wrong and you're dumb or whatever. It's, it, there, there's something there to be found. Yeah, I mean, the, the shorthand version is debunking is an inherently negative process, and mm -hmm. I try to give the listener something or the reader something, making it an inherently positive process. I don't just take the ghost away. 
I don't just tell you what we actually know, but I try to find how we know it. And that's, that's where it's, that's where it's not only entertaining, but, but genuinely educational. Yeah. And I think I appreciate that about the book Conspiracies Declassified as well, because you have included in that book an index of further reading. So it is almost like you're, you're giving back. Um, if anybody wants to look into one of these particular conspiracies a little bit more, it's there. Yeah. For each chapter, uh, there's, a, there's a further reading suggestions or references, that kind of the, the places to go for, uh, for a deeper dive. Because with, with 50 of them in the book, you know, necessarily each one can only get uh, three or four pages. So, so you, you probably you could have done like an encyclopedia, I guess. You could have done like, uh, I'm, I'm imagining the encyclopedias my mom bought when we were kids that we, had, we just gathered dust. I mean, we never cracked the pages on those things because I had a Nintendo. So. And now it's a doorstop or something. Yeah, mine is about uh, 12 inches thick. It's this gigantic book. Yeah. No, no I don't want to write that. <laughs> I've had my fill of conspiracy theories for now. I can see that. But you mentioned something a moment ago uh, about the word skepticism. And that, uh, that's actually something that I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you if you feel like um, skepticism can be a double-edged sword. I think scientists are justifiably skeptical of an unproven hypothesis or something like the simulation. Um, it's not a hypothesis because it's untestable, right? But then you have conspiracy theorists that also use skepticism to doubt what's uh, maybe an obvious story about something like 9-11. They, they doubt the moon landing, right? Well, yeah, okay, I mean, don't confuse skepticism with cynicism. Cynicism is typically how the conspiracy theorist arrives at, uh, at their conclusion. And, and I can mm. defend that by pointing out that if you take 9-11, that 9-11 was an inside job, there are as many versions of that claim as there are people who believe it. Some say the airplanes were holograms. Some say the airplanes were missiles painted to look like airplanes. Some say there were no airplanes. Some say the airplanes were piloted by the government. All, mm -hmm. of, these, all of these claims are mutually exclusive. Yeah. They, they can't both be true. And yet these people all consider themselves allies, which is completely irrational, simply because they're, the one thing that they share is that the official story is wrong. Whatever the government says is wrong, period. Therefore, anything else that we believe is true. So that's not a skeptical process. That's not a process of following the evidence and seeing where it leads, mm -hmm. because the evidence doesn't lead to 55,000 different contradictory theories. So that's cynicism. I like calling that cynicism. I, I actually I like the 9-11 uh, example as well, because just this past Memorial Day, just a couple of weekends ago, uh, I did hear my father-in-law and brother-in-law fully and seriously, I thought they were joking for a minute, fully and seriously support the 9-11 conspiracy that it was a missile that hit the Pentagon. And they were both, um, they both believed it because they said, well, this is the government we're talking about. And it, it seemed cynical. It seemed mistrustful and, and rooted in that less than rooted in some other form of evidence. Yeah. So the, the skeptical process is basically the scientific method. We assume that everything is, you know, nothing is certain. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the best explanation for anything, and we're constantly trying to improve that explanation. So when you're, when you're a scientist, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you're working on, the scientific method, a.k.a. the skeptical process, assumes that the results you have are likely wrong. And so you're constantly trying to falsify your own work. 
You're trying mm-hmm. to poke holes in it. Because if you don't, your colleagues certainly are going to. So I, I, never, hear, I never hear the 9-11 truthers trying desperately to find what's wrong, what's unsupportable with their particular pet theory. Science is trying to falsify itself, and cynicism insists on holding on to a, a particular narrative with the mind absolutely closed off to any other possibilities. Totally. I, I, I think that for a lot of folks who have not been involved in science through education, if they've never participated in hypothesis testing, whether it be in like a hard science, uh, biology, or, or something like statistics where you're not proving the hypothesis, what you're doing is you're, you're either rejecting the hypothesis or you're failing to reject the hypothesis. It either You either kill the hypothesis or it survives. And I don't think that the general populace is really aware that that's the method that science follows. Like you said, it's trying to falsify itself. It's not trying to uh, find some shred of evidence, some doctored photo to to support a outlandish claim. It's what can what, what can be disproven more so than what can be proven. Very very much so. The the the, the popular notion of what uh, what science consists of is not too dissimilar from kind of the the charges that I get from from the conspiracy theorists all the time, and that's that. Science is a particular dogmatic set of conclusions and that nobody would ever dare question the status quo because they'd lose their grant funding or, or something like that, it's, it, as if it's religious dogma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, when, and when anyone who works in science hears that, you just can't help but fall down laughing because it is so far removed from anything close to reality. Nevertheless, it's, we, we always have our work cut out for us trying to explain the scientific method to the general population. Indeed, indeed. They, they give Big Pharma maybe a little too much credit as well. Like, oh, you know that cure for cancer's out there somewhere. They got it locked away right <laughs> next to the Ark of the Covenant in that big-ass big warehouse. They got it locked up right next to the Indiana Jones thing because you know Big Pharma's making more money by selling the treatment than selling the cure. But I think they, they, they give them too much credit because all of these different um, scientific organizations that work at uh, the big universities, hospitals, etc., they're more loosely connected than that. I don't think one or two or three pharmaceutical companies could keep all of those different scientific organizations under their thumb and suppress all of these people. They would no doubt they'd get all sort of Nobel Prizes and stuff for, for curing cancer, right? I mean, there's an incredible incentive for a ton of different people to do something like that, but the conspiracy theorists say no. Big, uh, big farm or big government, they won't let it happen. And, and all of their competitors in, in, from every country are fully on board with helping to protect their secrets. Like uh, me, the struggling small pharmaceutical company, if I learn that there's a single bean that you can find in the rainforest that, uh, that cures cancer, and I find that somebody else has found it and they keep it locked away in the safe, boy, I'm never going to say anything about that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep their secret to my dying day. I'm not going to go try and find it myself. I certainly wouldn't try and sell it or make any money off of it. It's like, where is the logic in that? It follows no logic that I can fathom because there would be, like you said, a small pharma, a, a small uh, you know, university somewhere that says, screw it, we're not about the money. We're going to publish these results. We want to save people from cancer. And you can imagine that the, the, the type of grant funding that would occur 
after you you cure cancer. I mean, you'd be riding this this high wave for the rest of your life. I mean, for the rest of your career. Who wouldn't want to be the next Louis Pasteur or something like that? The, th- the thing that I always wonder, because the big pharma conspiracy is very widely believed. I mean, you don't even have to have other general conspiratorial beliefs to have some, some faith that, uh, that all the pharmaceutical companies in every country are, are somehow in cahoots. And, and I always wonder, what, what, is the na- what does this cahoots look like? What is the nature of the pressure that all of these companies are willingly agreeing to? Who is going around and, and threatening them or, or whatever pressure that they apply um, to, to keep them from selling, to keep them from making money off of these products? And why are they agreeing to, to, to serve under this cabal? I just I just can't understand what what the uh, what's what's the whole conspiracy theory look like? How does that work? And it just I just can't I can't picture that. I can't either. And I also can't imagine why nobody in the conspiracy theory world hasn't named their dog Cahoots yet. I feel like <laughs> that would be a great name for your pet. And you know, you ride around in the van, you try to get pictures of UFOs, and you got a dog named Cahoots. I think that's wonderful. That is very good. I might actually jump on that. I'm going to do that. I'm not a big conspiracy guy, but yeah, I'm going to name my dog Cahoots. It just seems like a great uh, great name for a dog. So I think you'll agree that, that things like conspiracies, uh, pseudoscience certainly, have existed maybe as long as society has. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you feel like there's more uh, of the spread of those things out there now than there was maybe prior to the internet? Okay, so I, I, I get this question a lot. Certainly, YouTube has a lot to answer for in terms of the misinformation that it has popularized. Whether we as a society can get around that and find some, some version that does not spread misinformation easily is, is, is problematic. So it's, yeah, it's definitely easier to spread misinformation but it's also easier to spread good information. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that argument holds up very well. Um, the tendency to believe in conspiracy theories doesn't necessarily have to do with what information you've been exposed to. It's really an evolved trait. And kind of the classic example that, that you know, most people have probably heard is is this whole concept of agency detection, where our brain is always seeking to find agency, i.e. in intelligent purpose, mm-hmm. behind commonplace things in the world. So when you imagine the first humans running across the savanna after they jump out of the tree and they hear a rustling in the bushes, some of them are going to go, oh my gosh, every rustling is a saber-toothed cat out to kill me. They jump mm-hmm. back up into the tree and they survive. Some of the proto-humans say, oh, that's probably just the wind, it's nothing. And once in a while, they do get eaten by a saber-toothed cat. So this tendency toward paranoia is actually an evolved trait. It's a survival instinct. Now, that suggests that through all these generations of humanity evolving, that we would be incredibly paranoid, because that's the trait that's selected for. And... And, and, and we are. Natively, we are. That's why it's easy for people to believe in conspiracy theories. But the reason we don't all believe in it is because we're also intelligent and we have our life experiences through which we can filter these native tendencies. So, 
you know, I've lived my whole life without any lizard people jumping out of my TV and killing me, so I'm not worried that when I see a glitch in the video that it's a lizard person with an electronic disguise that's failing. Natively, I tend to suspect something bizarre like that, but my brain filters it out because of my life experience. Now, we all have different life experience, and so we all have different filters through which our native tendencies go, and so we all have a different set of beliefs. And that's really why we see kind of this whole spectrum of people from people who believe every conspiracy theory to people who believe none of them. And we're all somewhere along that spectrum. I see. So would you say that uh, something like education, uh, going to school, going to college, uh, studying some of these things, uh, a a field of science, I mean, even if it's only as an elective while you're you're working towards your art degree, um, would you say that education is a good way to combat or, or balance out the native tendency to paranoia. It clearly is. By surveying people who and what conspiracy theories they tend to accept, we see clear correlations between the more education you have, the fewer conspiracy theories you believe. And, and the reason for that is, is, is pretty clear. Uh, through an educational program, you're exposed to more ideas. You learn more about the way the world actually works. And so your, your filters kind of improve for looking for conspiracy theories. So besides the, the anthropological explanation of this being a survival mechanism, that paranoia to uh, run up the tree when you hear the, the bush rustle because you don't want to get eaten, um, do you think there are any other reasons why people believe conspiracy theories or, or maybe even why someone who is well-educated might entertain uh, a conspiratorial type belief. I mean, is there? We we touched on the mistrust of the government or or big farm or these large organizations. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like maybe some of these people find them um, fascinating or or like romantic in some classical way, or are people contrarians who want to go against the grain? Every conspiracy theory is ideologically attractive to some segment of the population. Um, there are, there are conspiracy theories that are attractive to conservatives, conspiracy theories that are attractive to liberals. So we're all kind of, we're also sort of preconditioned to accept a certain segment of the conspiracy theories just based on, you know, our, our, our whole life ideology. And that's not politics. That can be anything else about our personalities. And beyond that, there's also the whole aspect of believing in a conspiracy theory means you have some sort of secret knowledge. You have this secret insider knowledge. And that's something that's very psychologically attractive to everyone, to be you know, one of the select few who's in on the secrets mm-hmm. and consequently able to defend yourself from them, unlike the sheeple who... <laughs> sheeple is the, the conspiracy theorist's classic term for people who don't believe their conspiracy theory. It's they're the ones who have the wool pulled over their eyes and who are just being manipulated by the government or the evil forces that be. We're being led along like sheep. Yeah. So, so you have, you have, you're, you're defending yourself by believing the conspiracy theory. So there's, it's, it's, it's attractive at a number of levels. You know, it's, hmm. it's not only in our genes, but it's ideologically attractive and it's psychologically attractive. I had considered the psychological attractiveness by thinking that people are maybe contrarians. I have a little bit of that in me. So I considered the contrarian aspect of someone not wanting to follow along with what the accepted story was, like the moon landing. I I feel like the people who doubt the moon landing 
are, are kind of, they're doing it because it's like, it's the cool thing to do, man. And I'm, <laughs> I'm the, the outsider on the fringe. I hadn't considered that maybe it was sort of like an in-group, out-group type of thing. Like everyone wants to be one of the few instead of one of the many. I can understand that as well. I, I tend to fight the cynicism with cynicism. I like your mission of, of seeking the truth behind these things, but I tend to look at these claims and, and maybe dismiss them a little bit more offhand. So, for example, the simulation, the simulation one, I, I hear that and I think, who the fuck simulates this shit? I have seen the most ridiculous shit on the Internet. I saw a couple having sex on top of a dead bear. Who, if you're simulating this, if someone's simulating this, it's gone way wrong. It's time to pull the plug because I have seen a Puerto Rican guy pay a lady to kick him in the genitals for fun. This is a, that's a really fucked up simulation. I got to say, I'm throwing the simulation idea out on that basis alone. Man, you're watching different YouTube channels than me. <laughs> they don't put those on YouTube, unfortunately. I just got really, I got kind of messed up friends who send me this stuff. And it's, you know, uh, I guess there's a 13-year-old inside me still that, that does kind of chuckle at it. Um, but things like reincarnation as well. I mean, why does everybody have to be the reincarnation of some Egyptian king with a 13-inch dick? Why is nobody a reincarnation of an alcoholic Irishman with erectile dysfunction? And then the reincarnation thing, also, I get a little uncomfortable because could you be your own grandpa? That could get weird. Like, you had sex with your own grandma to make your dad, and, and then you were born as a reincarnation of your own grandpa. I think it's, that's, that recycles the gene pool a little too much. I'm a little weird with that. So I throw reincarnation out as well, uh, despite, the, despite the fact that I love Buddhism. You you know I I I love your approach. It's it's different from my approach, and that's that's the strength because uh, everyone is more susceptible to some particular form of persuasion, and the more the more different approaches we use to spread you know kind of rationality and reason, uh, the more likely we're going to catch more people. So so I I embrace all approaches. Yeah, I think mine mine involves less reading and less Googling. I'm just like, yeah, that sounds crazy. I'm tossing that out. You know, because I have biochemistry stuff to read. So uh, that that occupies most of my time. Exciting. Do you have, yeah, it's wicked exciting. Um, do you have a favorite conspiracy theory? Is there one that, that just tickles you the right way and you're just like, this one's hilarious? Or alternatively, is there one that would just like, blow your mind the most if it did turn out somehow in some alternate universe to be true? The one that I like the best, and it has to do with the reason that I like it, and I, I always go back to the moon landing hoax, that the Apollo moon landings were faked and they didn't actually happen. Mm -hmm. But the reason that I like that one is because, going back to how we know what we know, how can we prove that we went to the moon? And these proofs that we have are really, really, really cool. And it's something that the people who believe the conspiracy theory are not aware of. You know, when you have conspiracy theorists who are super into their particular belief, whatever it is, they will know some alternate narrative so thoroughly that somebody like me would never be able to keep up with all of the little tidbits of minutia that they have to support it. Mm -hmm. Conversely, the opposite is also true. They don't have anywhere near the knowledge of the true facts of the Apollo program. And I think that once you can reveal those, they go, whoa, that's actually really interesting. 
So that's why I like the moon landing one. And my favorite part of that is the there's three or four aspects of the moon rocks that were brought back that no way, no how could ever possibly be faked. That we know that they came back to Earth through some protected way. They didn't come through the atmosphere. We know that they were on the moon. We know that human hands were touching them on the moon. We know all of these things, and it's provable by hard science that anyone can inspect, anyone who has a moon rock in their hand can inspect it, and that cannot be faked. And when you learn that stuff, then you've come up with something new, and you go, whoa, that's actually really cool. I want to learn more about it. Yeah. And, the, and then the conspiracy theory version just falls away. So, yeah, I think that that uh, that is a good point that probably there's not a ton of conspiracy theorists out there that are really expert geologists to compare a moon rock to an earth rock and understand the geological differences that we might be able to prove. Well, yeah, but, but also some of the stuff about the moon rocks is you don't have to be a geologist necessarily to understand it. Um, and I, I can just give a couple of examples. The, yeah. the rocks have something, they're covered with something that we call zap pits, um, Z-A-P. And that's basically tiny little microscopic craters from having been hit by micrometeorites while they were on the moon. And these zap pits... They're the biggest are about one millimeter. They're tiny. Many of them are much smaller than that. And to make these little craters that small required an impact speed of about 80,000 kph. And here on Earth, we don't have any way to accelerate anything to 80,000 kph. Even the fastest rail guns that we have cannot accelerate a particle to that speed. So that's something that absolutely no way could have been faked. That's, that's something that anyone could, you can see pictures of them on the internet, microscopic photos, and that's really cool. That's something that I think is neat. That is a, a piece of evidence that um, I've never heard before in the discussion of whether or not the moon landings were a hoax. You know, I've heard plenty about Stanley Kubrick filming the thing, but I've, I've never heard um, the the other side of things, which is that there are these methods of, of, of analyzing these rocks to prove, uh, without a doubt, that they did come from the moon and they were not part of Stanley Kubrick's um, set. So <laughs> I learned something today. That's very, very cool. Yeah, and, and that's one of a long list of things just about the rocks that, that, that can't be faked, and, and that's really cool. But... Uh, like I say, the, the, the moon, the Apollo believers, the moon hoax believers would be able to come up with a long list of things from their version of the narrative that I've never heard of, that no one has heard of simply because they didn't happen. <laughs> a moment ago, you, I think you almost mentioned the response to your work from folks in the conspiratorial community. Um, do, you, do you get any negative feedback or any backlash from your work? Does George Norrie from Coast to Coast AM want to fight you? Um, is there, are there any ramifications like that? Yeah, death threats. Seriously, death threats? Um, the, the, the typical one, and I honestly get this every day, whether it's Facebook comments or, or Twitter replies, um, the, the average one is uh, it's anti-Semitic, and it's about you know the, the Rothschilds secretly mm, own the yeah. world, the Zionists secretly own the world, the Jews were behind 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, anti-Semitism is far and away the loudest of the people who uh, send out 
negative feedback uh, toward not just me, but but toward almost all science writers get this stuff. And you honestly get death threats? I mean, for real? Oh, sure. I mean, not serious ones. Okay. You know, just people on Twitter. Well, I won't, I won't repeat what they say, but it's, uh, it involves dying at my own hand via some sexual way that's uh, odd. That's, <laughs> that, that's typical. Like autoerotic asphyxiation? Like, <laughs> to me, it's like, a, you know, I, I can understand the idea that, that people are very committed to the, the things that they believe. But, I mean, the idea of, like, taking it to the level of violence because I don't like the things that this Brian Dunning guy is putting on his podcast and publishing in books, uh, that seems a little too far for me. But, I mean, I guess that's why I don't have any felony assaults on my record either. So, um, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's just the type of person. <laughs> yeah, to, to each his own. I mean, it, it, it's good that people are passionate about something in life, I guess. Yeah, but maybe not maybe not your demise. I mean, I would love for people to be passionate about their family and the kids and uh, you know, donating to veterans and homeless and stuff like that. Like be passionate about the stuff that helps, but don't be passionate about this uh the, the Brian Dunning guy dying in a horrible fire. That's terrible. I think that's good advice, but uh whether anyone will heed it uh, remains to be seen. Well, I hope so. I find that I find that these kind of beliefs and these tendencies they're pretty much constant throughout human history, and I don't think they're about to go away anytime soon for all the reasons that we discussed. You know, the, yeah. the, it, it's, it's hardwired in all of us. It's emotionally attractive. It's psychologically attractive. I think it's just, it, it's here to stay. And maybe that's a good thing too, because it has created some podcast content for the both of us now. That's true. I'm not in danger of going out of business anytime soon. I especially liked your episode on the palm oils, the coconut oils, the the sort of science that goes along with the nutritional recommendations is really what gets me as a, a nutrition science PhD student. Uh, that's that's the stuff that kills me because everybody reads a HuffPo article and decides they're a HuffPo nutritionist, and I think that. With regard to eating, not everybody works in a lab with a microscope, so people will sometimes back off of the harder science, the chemistry, the, the biology stuff. But because everybody eats, everyone's an expert, and all you got to do is scroll over to HuffPo and read about how awesome coconut oil is, and a day later, you're feeding <laughs> to your kids, right? Yeah, I mean, food woo is uh, the common term for that whole thing. People are just unwilling to accept the simple fact that we're omnivorous. We can do just fine on virtually any kind of diet. And as long as you don't have some really, really, really extreme diet, you're going to be just fine. Uh, you know, we can, we can look around the planet and see what did the Eskimos live on? Blubber. Uh, what did the Hawaiians live on? What did the Africans live on? Mm. These radically diverse diets. And everyone does just fine. People don't want to seem to accept that there's no such thing as a superfood. Yeah. No such thing as a, you know, a, a type of hamburger that will immediately kill you as soon as the first bite goes in your mouth. It's, it's food woo. That's another area where we're just not in danger of going out of business anytime soon. No, no doubt. Uh, I think that the food woo sticks around because there's a lot of money to be made by selling superfoods or uh, miracle cures, diets, pills. And I think that th this is an area of um, dispelling pseudoscience. And oftentimes in the fitness world, it's called bro science because these are the bros who go to the gym and, and pump iron. But the pseudoscience surrounding uh, the food myths 
yeah. I think is especially pernicious simply because there's a tremendous economy built on that that's not built on the Apollo moon landings. I mean, there's a few documentaries, a couple of books, but here it's it's a billion-dollar supplement industry. It's a tremendous industry. So actually, this is one area where I would expect the death threats because there's money on the table. This is mob stuff eventually or at a certain level. Yeah, well, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. Anytime there's an economic engine behind a particular myth, you're going to see not just YouTube people promoting it, but also very expensive paid advertisements promoting it. So that's misinformation that's going to spread very, very well. And then on the other hand, when you do have a nutritional expert, I'll throw my hat in that category. Um, I'm, I'm working on the PhD there. My wife is a nutritionist. She's a, a RD. She's actually registered. I, I shouldn't call her nutritionist. Yeah, thank you. I was going to point that out. There's a big difference between nutritionist and dietitian. That's yes. another thing people aren't aware of. Well, that, that is true because anybody can be a nutritionist. You, can, you yeah. don't even have to graduate high school, I don't imagine, to become a nutritionist. But she is a registered licensed dietitian. Um, she has master's degrees in, in dietetics as well as in exercise. And so when someone asks one or both of us about a, a superfood diet, a, a miracle pill, something like that, we give them an answer that is just very unsexy. We just say essentially what you did, that we're omnivorous and that eating a balance of foods is the best way to approach your diet. And, and eating too much of, of any one thing might be bad. Eating not enough of another thing also might have bad effects on your health. But people look at us and just kind of like screw up their eyebrows and say, what the hell? I mean, this is that's terrible advice. It's not what I wanted to hear. This is, I mean, you're, you're giving me some traditional advice and you're not telling me that this pill works and then this blueberry extract thing is, is going to help me live to a hundred and, and have ripped abs. So it's always, we, we never give people what they want. And it's always a bit of a disappointment when you actually talk to a nutrition expert, someone with a certification, a licensure, a degree, and they tell you, yeah, you know, just, you know, eat, eat a little bit of lean protein, eat plenty of vegetables, have a little bit of fruit, eat some whole grains. You'll be good, bro. And, and pe people don't want to hear that. But you also, you do get the whole death threat thing uh, when it comes to segments of food woo that are deeply ideological, i.e. organic or being mm -hmm. anti-GMO. Uh, these are these are ideologies that some people hold like religion. Yes. Um, you know, as, as, as you're aware, anything anytime you have food that's marketed as organic, that says nothing about the content of the food. It's not a science term. It's a marketing mm. term, purely is, a marketing term. There is no reason to buy organic produce. And yet the people who have bought into this thoroughly marketed narrative that organic food is healthy and natural and pure and untainted by human intervention, you know, that's what we call the naturalistic fallacy. Mm -hmm. uh, they are so passionate about this. And if you do follow some of the food scientists on, on Twitter, like people from Monsanto or just even people who are researchers in the field, uh, you'll see that they get these horrible death threats and horrible treatment all the time. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a scary stuff. They're, they're the devil as far as a lot of these folks are concerned out there. I mean, that's that's like ninth circle of hell shit right there. If you're if you're with Monsanto or if you if you agree with them, I don't. For the record, I don't um, I don't do any organic food. I don't go out of my way. I mean, I guess I would eat it if it were served to me. I wouldn't slap the plate out of the waiter's hand. But I would. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Um, I don't spend the extra buck or two. And I'm even a little bit skeptical about the hormone free meats, the hormone free chicken breast, because I'm like, dude, I don't want to eat a sick chicken, like. I take antibiotics when I'm ill, 
So, like, you know, uh, why do I want an antibiotic-free chicken? This guy was sick and full of bacteria. Yeah, this, this is another area where it's, it's completely illogical because the livestock uh, farmers, one of their biggest expenses is veterinary care, and they actually do want to minimize their expenses. Isn't that amazing? Uh, mm. it, the, the conspiracy theorists uh, who believe that our food is loaded up with all of these antibiotics and hormones used to fatten the livestock and everything at complete disregard for their health and creating superbugs, they're kind of missing the overall obvious point. They say that the farmers are doing this for profit. Actually, it's their biggest expense. They try to minimize it as much as they can. It's, it, it's, it's another area that's totally irrational. And I think that there's... A lot of, I, I hate to say it, um, soccer moms out there. There's a lot of middle-aged ladies with a couple of young kids that would never even consider buying a chicken breast that was treated with hormones or antibiotics. But no hesitation after putting those little shits to bed when they when they pop the Xanax and wash it down with half a bottle of red wine. No hesitation. <laughs> but 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 they would never put the antibiotic hormone chicken in the cart. But the, the Xanax and the red wine, no problemo. Yeah. Proven proven carcinogens uh, that they will uh, voraciously devour um, and, and, and avoid these uh, avoid commonplace foods that they read on the internet may possibly be carcinogenic. Something for which there's usually no evidence at all. I feel like the anti-vaxxers are a little tied maybe to that, uh, that group of people, too, like there's some crossover there. Yeah, and, and a lot of this comes down to the whole naturalistic fallacy, this, this very ideologically attractive belief that everything in nature is pure and wonderful and anything tainted by, by human intervention is sort of morally wrong. And I, I think there's a lot of really bad things that do occur naturally. Um, you know, things like um, snake venom, snake venom, certain poisons and stuff like that. I'm, I mean, cocaine is perfectly natural, right? I mean, you just pull it out of the leaves, right? I mean, I think they do have to do some some work on it to, to bleach it. And I don't know too much about cocaine production. I, I promise, Mom. Uh, but the idea that something is good because it's natural, I, I don't think that stands up to very much reason either. It doesn't, but it makes for a very attractive narrative that's easy to spread. It's, it's, it's a perfect example of the, the, how bad information with the Internet can spread like wildfire. I said at the top of the show that good information can spread like wildfire as too, using the same tools as on the Internet. But, uh, you know, it, it has been shown. Um, do I have—oh, I don't have it at the tip of my fingers. There's a, a study that I love to cite a lot about how— how much easier misinformation is to spread than, than good information, how much more receptive people are to it. And mm. that usually comes down to it's sensational. Yeah. And that's so closely tied to what's attractive about conspiracy theories is you have this amazing new knowledge that most people don't have. It's something that, uh, that's just very, very psychologically attractive. I think that's why people are so much more likely to uh, leave a bad review than a, a good review, right? They're, they're, you, you think you get like two or three, maybe even more bad Yelp reviews for a restaurant than the good ones. People are a little bit more motivated to kind of complain than they are to say, hey, this is a great experience, right? I love that correlation right there. I would love to see a study done about that. I would too. Tendency to leave bad reviews versus good reviews compared to conspiratorial beliefs. Someone do that study. Somebody do that study. 
somebody who's listening who's into the science piece. And I think maybe that's why what you said about the um, the internet being a uh, it's it's just as easy to spread the the good information, the true information, as it is the misinformation. But uh, maybe there's a little bit more pull to the the misinformation. But maybe that's why what you're doing is so valuable as well with uh, the Skeptoid podcast as well as your publications. Um, you're also working on uh, in a very early stages of pre-production of a documentary film, right? Yep. It's called Science Friction. And this documentary is about scientists who have appeared on TV documentaries, uh, feature film documentaries as an expert, but then had their words edited badly, taken out of context, and made to sound like they're saying the opposite of what they actually said. This happens to virtually everyone who goes on these shows as an expert. It's happened to me. It, it, It can be anything from as mild as you know, they only take a small amount of what you said. Like like when I go on one of these shows as an expert, they'll say, okay, what's the legend of the Mothman? And then what was it really? They only take the segment where I'm talking about what the legend was, and it sounds like I believe it and am promoting it. I mean, mm. That's the mildest possible form, and that happens to virtually every scientist who goes on as an expert. But um, we, we have on the website, sciencefriction.tv, some of the specific cases that we're covering in the film, and you can read about those stories. But some of them are absolutely shocking, where they, they go as far as you know, editing half a sentence and grafting it onto another sentence to make it sound like you're saying the opposite of what, what, uh, what you did. Uh, it's, it's, it's stunning. Yeah. And it will make you lose faith in a lot of these... Um, so-called documentaries on these so-called science channels on television. Yeah, and is that is that even kosher for them to do? I mean, I guess you sign a release when you appear on one of these documentaries, one yeah. of these programs. So it's in the release, they're saying, hey, we might chop your stuff up and uh, make you sound completely kooky. They don't even have to say that. All they say is we own whatever we record, which is, you know, that's basic copyright law anyway. So. I see. Once uh, someone records you, they can edit it however they want, make it say whatever they want it to say. There's nothing, nothing illegal about that. Do you, do you recommend then that people be, I guess, other scientists out there who might be interviewed, who might appear on, on, uh, in a piece of media, do you recommend that they be judicious about where they appear? Because maybe there are some bad actors out there who are more willing to <laughs> chop up what they say and represent it. So to answer that question, I will tell you my favorite interview that of, of the people we've talked to already making the film. Uh, and we didn't film him yet. I just had this conversation with him. I ran into him at a conference. I'm speaking of Richard Wiseman, who's a very famous experimental psychologist out of the UK, a great fun guy. He's also a magician. He's got a great series <laughs> of videos on YouTube called Quirkology. That's awesome. So I talked to him about this. I said, hey, Richard, has this ever happened to you? And he... <laughs> It was so funny. I would have given anything to have had a camera on there because he literally like grabs me and backs me against the wall and puts his finger in my face, pointing at me as he's talking, punctuating each point with his finger. (laughs) (laughs) The reason this happens, the reason this doesn't happen to me is because when one of these TV shows comes to our university with one of these proposals, here's the contract we give them. It's 50 pages long. It gives us creative control over their project. We have final cut. It's basically, we are are your co-executive producers on this film and we get to dictate the content of your film and of course nobody is going to agree to a to a contract like that and he says and that's why it hasn't happened to me so i told him my god this is these are the lengths that you have to go to as a scientist to protect yourself from being edited out of context and i told him 
man, Richard, I'd give anything to just have those last two minutes <laughs> in the film. Jeez. So we are going to try and get to the UK and and uh, and have him repeat that for us. And the one thing that we want to include in the credits, as the end credits are rolling, we want each scientist who appeared in our film to send us a little Skype video of himself telling us what uh, he thought of the way that he or she was presented in the film, in our film. Ah, yeah. So they get to kind of have a final say about, hey, I thought I was represented very well. So we will be completely honest and transparent with how we're presenting them. I think that's great. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Uh, I don't think maybe everybody is as uh, critical in their analysis of what is presented on a TLC station as a documentary. But, I mean, these are the, the same stations that do, like, reality shows about the Real Housewives and the little people and stuff. So um, it does seem like any educational content that they put forth, you got to kind of take with a grain of salt, too, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, great. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, anything else that you wish to share that you would feel incomplete if we don't mention before we wrap up? <laughs> well, I would just like to repeat uh, where people can, can go for more information on all of these, which I'm grateful for you to giving me the opportunity to, uh, to get out there. Of course. Uh, Conspiracies Declassified is the name of the book. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any bookstore that sells books. It's from Adams Media, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. So it can be ordered or acquired at any bookstore. Um, and you can get links to it on my personal website, briandunning.com. Um, it's right there on the homepage. Uh, the, the podcast, which is my full-time job, is Skeptoid, and you can get that at skeptoid.com. And the documentary film we were just talking about, if, if you want to watch the trailer, see some of these interviews with scientists, you can see that at sciencefriction.tv. Awesome. I ordered my copy of the book on Amazon, but I was going to ask you to make sure that that's available everywhere. I'm glad to hear that is available all over the place. And um, I read it over the course of two nights max. I mean, I just, um, I, I, I voraciously read it. And uh, so I got to recommend everybody go check that out. It's a fast read. Yeah. It is fun. a fast read. Yeah. And it's great. Um, I like that there are the 50 conspiracies. So it's really easy to pick up and put down. It's not a 400 page narrative that if you put it down, and you pick it back up again a week later because you got busy or whatever. You're like, okay, where the heck was I? It's it's a really great read for um, for for just being able to really slip in and out of very easily. And I, I really like what they did with the cover art. The cover art is really fun. If you uh, there's a picture of it at BrianDunning.com or if you look at any of those Amazon links or whatever. Yeah, I'm going to post a picture of it to my Instagram and uh, Twitter as well, my social media, So, um, along with this episode when it releases. And I, I, I do like uh, they've got their redactions on the cover and stuff. Yeah. I mean, they really <laughs> they make it look really cool. And the back cover has a little redaction on it. And I'm, I keep wondering, what the heck does it say under that one redaction on the back cover? <laughs> what could it possibly say? But, yeah, they, they really did a cool job with the, um, the graphic design of the book as well. It's very appealing. You know what? Now that I'm holding the book up to the light and angling it, I think it actually does say something under that redaction. It's hard to read, but... It is. I'm going it, to try and get in there with some filters and see if I can make that out. Because I think there is... Uh, that's not just a black blob. It's, it's, it's a black blob over, I think, full four-color um, black text. So it does show up. Cool. My conspiracy theory is that underneath that redaction, it says, I buried Paul. <laughs> That's my favorite conspiracy theory. It's, uh, Paul is dead. Shh. <laughs> All righty, sir. Well, I do appreciate your time today. Thank you. That was a lot of fun.
That's a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for chatting. And um, I, anytime that you're you're pushing something out there, like if the documentary is moving forward, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you anytime about the science stuff. It seems like we feel very similarly on these issues. So I'll be happy to have you back on anytime, anytime you like. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you very much for your time today, sir. All right. Well, have a great day. You as well. We're back. Appreciate everybody listening so far. Hopefully you guys will run out, go run out, run right out. Actually, you don't have to run anywhere. You can just open your computer like I did. You can go over to Amazon.com. You can order Conspiracies Declassified by Brian Dunning. You can head over to his website at Skeptoid.com. You can check out his podcast. It's good listening, I promise. Brian was gracious enough to really spend some time chatting with us, which I thought was awesome. But um, it means like, wow, uh, that's a lot to recap. Do you have, I asked, I asked Brian this, but I'll, I'll ask you, do you have a favorite conspiracy theory? I know you don't really believe any conspiracy theories. I don't either, but I still think they're kind of fun. There's like this mystery there, and I know it's fiction, but I appreciate it the same way I appreciate like interesting fiction. So mm-hmm. what's your favorite? What's your favorite conspiracy theory? Oh, that, um, that the world is going to end like very soon and mm-hmm. people are stocking up. Um, you know, can good. You mean the preppers, the doomsday the preppers. preppers. Yeah, the they doom- call them doomsday yes. preppers. Yeah. I just find that. Um, These are so the ones that build their own and bomb they, shelters. And, yeah. And there's like a, I think there's a whole almost, I don't know if it's still going on. I haven't. You mean the reality show? No. Well, I thought there was a TV show about there, doomsday preppers. They're very, I think there is, but I haven't seen it. But I was thinking of, there's like a, um, I think there's like an industry or there's a line of business or something yeah. where they're building yeah. how they're building these can can house like a certain number of people underground. Yeah, or, people build their own. They they contract out the doomsday prepper guys. They'll contract out somebody to build them like an underground bunker. They'll stock it up. There's a lot of these companies now that make these. Um, they're almost like MREs that the army gets, the military gets, the, the, the little meals in the bag that you can, they're dehydrated. You just pop the top. I mean, it's not just canned goods. Like there are legit companies that are Mm -hmm. getting involved in this by selling these kits, these like prepper kits with the, the iodine tablets that you'll need to put in your water to, to purify that and shit. And I mean, I think there's, I don't think it's a humongous industry, but there's like Mm -hmm. a legitimate economy built around the 2012 thing. I've always been fascinated with the end of the world predictions because that's kind of a, that's kind of an all or nothing thing, right? Like December 21st or whatever it was, 2012 rolls by and you're thinking, man, this world better fucking end. These guys are full of shit, right? So I always thought that the, um, when I was a little kid, I always, I would catch the, you know, A&E would have the little, like, I shouldn't call it a documentary. It was there were these like one hour things on like Nostradamus and his prophecies and shit. That's not a documentary. I mean, it's basically fiction, but it was presented in a mm-hmm. factual manner. I used to love those too. I, the, they would captivate my imagination. Mm-hmm. You remember mm-hmm. 2000? Yeah. I mean, we were old enough that when we were in the nineties, we were teenagers and thinking that the year 2000 was a couple of years off and they had the Y2K bug and you're thinking, oh right. my God, the planes are going to be falling out of the sky at midnight mm-hmm. on, on uh, 2000, January 1st, 2000. I didn't think all that. I didn't think things were going to fall out. I just, I thought that the electronics were going to go haywire. But, and I also want to say, like, I don't, I mean, to each their own, you know, people can believe whatever they believe and I don't 
think people are less, at least I don't, I don't think they're less intelligent Mm. or I don't think Mm. anything, you know, there's pro there's reasons why people, you know, believe in the, or they, they, um, follow conspiracy theories or whatever. You know, you had mentioned, I think that, you know, my brother and my dad, they, they both, um, are more, um, receptive. Yes. I would say receptive. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just don't read about it. I'm just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't um, align with yeah. how I view things. So yeah. I just, I'm just not interested. In- I'm somewhere between your father and your brother and you. I think I'm somewhere in the middle there where I'm, I'm not really accepting conspiracy theories, certainly not at face value, but I, I certainly am. I, I have, you know, they used to call it like a healthy fear of God. I have sort of that healthy fear of of government, and you know, I don't, I, I, I don't feel like they're as menacing or or whatever as the conspiracy theories are. I just tend to think that they're human beings and that they're as fallible as the rest of us, and oftentimes self interested, just like everyone is. And so, my mistrust of government is basically like, well, I, how much of my own liberty do I want to outsource to someone else to take care of myself when I feel like I'm perfectly capable of doing so myself. And and so I wanted to comment on the yeah. government too, because I feel like, I don't know if I'm in a minority, but I don't have a strong mistrust. I actually feel in general that government and officials and all those um, I guess bureaucracies mm. in general, they they have the best interests, and yeah. I feel like you know with monitoring and and shit like that, for us to have a country and the freedoms we have, there's reasons that we have those freedoms, and there's like there's a lot of shit that's being done in the background to ensure our safety, et cetera. Yeah. And honestly, like if somebody wants to watch my phone and you got, and that seems like a security, like I, I ain't got nothing to hide. Like yeah. I don't give a fuck. Like go ahead, watch my phone. You want to look at my Facebook? Look at my face. Like I, I yeah. like that shit just doesn't really You're bother gonna me. You're going to get strong hate mail now. Yeah. Cause I don't, I know I don't have it. Like it just doesn't, that stuff just doesn't, I don't I, know. I, me. I, I will, th- this is, I think one area where you and I strongly disagree because I feel like, um, a very important amendment is the Fourth Amendment, which protects people from warrantless searches and seizures. So I agree with you. Where I agree with you is that 99, maybe 99.9% of people who work in government are well-meaning. Mm-hmm. I think they probably are a little bit more concerned about themselves and their careers than they are necessarily with like everybody else. But I don't think that they actively want to do harm to their mm-hmm. constituents. I think they want to get reelected and they want to keep their job. And I, I that's to me, that's perfectly understandable. And I don't blame them. Um, and I think most of the time they want to keep their job by serving their communities well. But on the other hand, I don't think the government is entirely free of bad actors. And I, I do agree with that. Like, I'm sure there's some, there's some shit, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. So my, my, my only thought is that I would not want to give up my free, I mean, you mentioned freedoms, the freedom of privacy in exchange for 
um, and enhanced security, whether it's truly enhanced or whether it's theoretically enhanced, I think that it is still important that we have our privacy simply because you might think you're not doing anything wrong. And I don't feel like I do anything wrong on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I'm doing anything that would make me a target Mm -hmm. for a government agency, certainly Mm -hmm. for prosecution. But I also think that um, laws change and stuff is legalized and some sometimes stuff is criminalized. And I don't want to allow someone in thinking, oh, we, we've agreed that I'm not doing anything wrong only for them to change the terms of the agreement and decide that now I am doing something wrong. So my thought is that I, I would like to have this sense of privacy that I think does technology does kind of erode a little bit. Well, I mean, I feel like we have privacy. I mean, I don't feel... I mean, do you disagree? Do you think our our privacy is... I think privacy is not a discrete measure. It's more continuous. So you can have a lot of privacy. You can have a little bit of privacy or you can have no privacy at all and, and somewhere along that scale. So I would say that I'm all for the maximal amount of privacy. But then again, there are warranted searches and seizures that are... Right. But do you feel like you don't have maximal privacy? I don't feel like I have maximal privacy, no. In what Um, sense? uh, Certainly in the sense of like electronic communication. I I don't... I mean, I'm sounding... You're... you're, Oh my gosh, you're bringing out the conspiracy theorist in me. I don't think that the, the government's tapped my phone and they're listening to me on my phone. But have you ever thought when you say, hey, Siri, she lights up. Did you hear that? Do you hear that? Do you hear that? How does she know that I said, hey, Siri, if she wasn't listening to me? That's so funny. How did she know? I mean, that phone's across the room because I don't want it making noise during this podcast recording. And so to me, am I safe for that phone to be listening to me? Maybe I am. But then again, on the other hand, is it possible that there are discrete recordings that are occurring? Is it possible that my email is being double-checked for words that might indicate that I'm some sort of uh, terrorist or something like that? So, I mean, it's definitely something. It's definitely something that I have concerns about, and I think I'm not concerned because I feel like I, I'm I'm lacking any privacy. I'm concerned because you don't want it to erode any more, right? Just like a a hillside. And you mm-hmm. see that there's erosion on the hillside. You don't want that hillside to continue to erode, so you plant some trees. So my thought is that I think people should be concerned about their privacy. It's like planting trees in the hillside to prevent erosion. I mean, and so I, I'm not saying I don't care about my privacy. Yeah, I, don't, I wasn't I just, putting that in your mouth either. I just don't think, well, I mean, I said it, but I guess I wasn't being literal. But I just don't feel that my privacy is threatened. Like, I just don't, I don't feel that. I mean, I appreciate that. I, I think most people on a day-to-day basis, they don't, they don't feel a, a big brother watching them. So, And everybody will have an issue until it, it picks up a terrorist and, and then all of a sudden it's going to be a different story or um, it didn't pick it up and then it's going to be an issue that it wasn't picked up, you know, and everybody wants the Siri and... All these things, well, te- it's technology and has to function in a certain way. I, I sometimes feel like Americans want their, they want their cake and they want to eat it too. And I they agree. want it to be fucking yeah. uh, 
fed to yeah. them on a silver fucking spoon. Yeah. And it's like, well. Because you want the utmost in <laughs> privacy, but you also want the utmost in yeah. security. And I don't want terrorist events to happen. I want the FBI to catch terrorists before they can harm Americans. Um, but at the same time, I cherish my my privacy as well. I have concerns, and yet I've adopted this device that flies in the very face of my concerns. Am I a hypocrite? Mm-hmm. I have to consider that as a possibility. Because remember, mm-hmm. I said I'm unbiased and I'm dispassionate. Mm-hmm. So I will openly consider the possibility that I'm being hypocritical at this moment. Well, and I think that's how a lot of folks will be. You know, their concern about privacy, you know, internet is going to be ever. I mean, there's a fucking smart fucking refrigerator. Yeah, you could watch the FedEx guy scratch his ass after he drops yeah. off your package while you're sitting at your desk at work. It's yeah. crazy. It's fucking yeah. crazy. It's fucking crazy. It is. Th- this almost feels like we could do a whole nother hour totally podcast great. on this topic because this is a very deep and very complex topic with a lot of different facets and a lot of different arguments to be made. And I want to do this topic mm-hmm. justice so... And I also don't want to stretch this episode too long. True. So I will say I really appreciate the depth of conversation that we took from Brian Dunning's Conspiracies Declassified, that it really pushed us into an intellectual conversation. But uh, on the other hand, I have to meet my fuck quota, so Mm -hmm. fuck. I was going to say because we're smart. Because we're smart. We're wicked fucking smart. smart. Um, I'm also working on my uh, Boston accent. We're wicked fucking smart. But I I did want to steer us back into maybe a more lighthearted realm because I asked you what your favorite conspiracy theory was, and you did not return the favor I and was, ask me. <laughs> I thought about as it, co- As co-host, you are <laughs> supposed to ask me, and you're not supposed to argue with me. You've done a lot of that. That's stuff. false. That's false. <laughs> so, your turn. I was just more interested in, in we got off to a, Yeah. <laughs> we got off to a very interesting topic, we so... Did. You're welcome. I understand. So, Jason. Yes. Um, what is your favorite conspiracy theory? Thank you for asking, Christina. Yeah. I mentioned during our conversation with uh, Brian Dunning at the very, very end there, I made a little joke. And I said, the redaction on the back of the book, underneath, I would love if it said, I buried Paul. And that's a reference to my favorite conspiracy theory, that Paul McCartney is dead. (sighs) Have you heard this one? This one's Mm. definitely not as popular these days as... The 9-11, the moon landing was a hoax, et cetera. But there is a conspiracy theory. I worked for, I, you You know me, you're, you're my wife, but I'll the tell the listeners. Store. I worked at a record store when I was a teenager. When I was 18, 17, 18, I was a senior in college and I worked at a record store. It was a mom and pop joint, independently owned by a guy who was a total Beatles nut. So that was a period of time in my life where I really, I mean, I was aware of the Beatles. I listened to the Beatles, but I really got to appreciate like the ins and outs. I watched all the Beatles movies there, everything. And there was a conspiracy theory that Paul McCartney died in a car crash in the late, what was 67, whatever the year was, but it was the late 60s that he died in a car crash late one night when he was leaving the Abbey Road Studios. And that they covered up his death because the band was insanely popular at the time. They wanted to keep the gravy train rolling. So what they did is they found a Paul McCartney lookalike. They provided him with a little bit of cosmetic surgery just to... Yeah, this is the story. I'm not saying I believe it. I love this story, though. 
It was just to keep the Beatles rolling. So they get this guy looking like Paul McCartney. They teach him to play the bass and some shit, and they get him singing Paul McCartney tunes. And there are, I mean, at the time it was cassettes. I'm sure it's on YouTube now. But I listened to these cassettes at the time that these Beatles nuts would, like, copy in their basement. They would, like, copy the cassettes over, and then they would, like, pass them around. And so I listened to this cassette series that had all this supposed evidence. And what makes this conspiracy theory so great is that the Beatles... Once it got around, they kind of played into it. There's a ton of their music that references. There's like uh, I Am the Walrus um, is a big one. Strawberry Fields Forever. I buried Paul. It sounds like I buried Paul. Apparently, according to the band, they said I'm very bored. Mm. But it sounds just like I buried Paul. And so there's a ton of stuff out there. I don't have time to get into it now, but I do recommend to anybody listening, if you've you've not heard of the Paul McCartney is Dead conspiracy theory, this one is fucking bonkers. And um, it's not insulting or offensive to the people who died in 9-11. And uh, it's not as uh, quite as crazy as the moon landing hoax. So this is just, to me, the Paul is Dead thing is just good, fun conspiracy theory listening to the records backward, uh, I buried Paul, I buried Paul. They play one of the records backward and shit. This was just shit they did in the 60s because mm-hmm. they only had three fucking TV stations, right? Mm-hmm. I got fucking 45 TV stations now. I don't have time to spin records backward, but these mm-hmm. fucking kids did. Anyway, honey, we've gone plenty long. I want to thank, again, Mr. Brian Dunning for coming on the show. Everybody go check out his book, Conspiracies Declassified on Amazon.com. Check out his podcast at skeptoid.com. Everybody go check out podcastnh.com for some fun live free or die podcasts. And um, hopefully we'll be seeing you guys on the OCD, the off-color discussions, um, YouTube live stream next week. Honey. I'm going to play with your titties. He's offered? No, authored. Authored. He is the author of. He is the author. Author. He is the author of. This motherfucker wrote a bunch of books. Shit. I can't say that shit, right? He wrote some books. He's smart as fuck. Read his books. They're good shit. Yeah. Yeah, motherfucker. Make you mad So give me all your hate Away your comments On the do-rag Where I'm a prop Or just wave that white flag I ain't here for entertainment